Most of us come to practice in the monastery because we have an interest in meditation. We may have become interested in the Buddhist teachings by joining retreats or meditation groups, also reading about the Buddhist teachings, suttas or teachings from different enlightened masters or meditation teachers. Most of us were not brought up in Buddhist families, so we haven't inherited a faith or belief in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha or the teachings. <clears throat> We've come to it over time. And the culture we live in is not a Buddhist culture as such. Buddhism is just one small part of Western culture. We have to bear that in mind, when, particularly when we come to train in a monastery following the Vinaya. The Vinaya in the monastic life, the life of a Samana, requires a lot of commitment. You have to study and learn many things, and we have to commit to the training, to the practice. And often our background is not so deep or supportive of this. So we have to really learn how to commit, how to give up to the training. As Venerable Bukhara said today, meeting people like ordinary people, workers, contractors, they don't know what a monk is, how we live, what we do. They may have all kinds of wrong perceptions as well. We also have to be honest ourselves. Often we're not fully acquainted with the life of a monk. Before we come to the monastery, we maybe have only met a few and very briefly. <coughs> so Ajahn Chah used to remind the monks, you, know, you put the robes on, shave your head, and so superficially we're called a monk, we're called venerable, this, venerable, that, bante, ajahn, reverent, and so on. But our minds and hearts are not yet the mind and heart of a samana. And that takes time and training to develop. We're developing samana sanya, the perception of being a samana one who is peaceful, one who is training in Dhamma Vinaya for the ending of suffering by abandoning Kilesa, by penetrating the Four Noble Truths. It takes time to do this, to develop the perception of being a Samana. They say the act of going forth is the fruition of our nekama parami, the parami of renunciation. 
as we know when we chant the teaching on the Eightfold Noble Path. Nikama Sankapa is one of the correct attitudes, the right ways of thinking that we're developing on the path. The, the thought, the intention to abandon the attachment to sensuality, seeking of sensual pleasures and attachment to the world in that way. The monastic life, the life of a seminar is committing to Nekama Sankaba very in a very direct way, very profound way. The heart of all Buddhist practice is the five precepts. For all Buddhists that's the basic guideline, the basic commitment you make <coughs> when you take up the Buddhist path. And then lay people sometimes take on the eight precepts or retreats or times when they stay in the monastery. It's also increasing the level of nekama. Then we have the novice precepts. We give up money, jatarupa patigahana, which is a big step because of money and karma as in sensuality Karma in that sense, uh, almost synonymous in our culture now. And we believe if you have money, you have the freedom to do what you want, get what you want, get goods, products, go places, have things. But you give that up when you become a novice monk. Then as a bhikkhu you continue that and you take on all the other more refined Vinaya training rules. But in brief, this is all the practice of nekama. So it does require giving up, giving up to the Dhamma Vinaya when we become a monk. Giving up to the training, the teaching. <coughs> giving up to the meditation object. But obviously it's not giving up without purpose and we gain true freedom the freedom of a mind that is unblemished unstained by defilement there's no our aim is to abandon greed hatred and delusions and experience the peace of a mind that is free from those unwholesome qualities But we have to understand why we practice and what we're doing and develop a skillful attitude to the practice. Often because of our background we have this very limited view that practice is about sitting, meditation, like we do on retreats. But really we're developing the meditative state of mind and the qualities of mind in all postures, in all activities. And the mind of a samana is like that. You're not a samana just when you're sitting meditation. You're a samana 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The vinaya doesn't change, the robes and the way we do things don't change. It's not just when we're sitting meditation. 
And that's because we're training the mind in the most complete way as a samana. We're developing the attitudes of a samana, the right thought and the right understanding, the right view, samaditi, of a samana at all times. So much of our practice is about just observing ourselves, watching over the mind, observing, learning in all situations, and not just when we're meditating in a formal posture. And this is why we practice the Vinaya. We're learning to train in mindfulness and awareness and seeing Kilesa at work. Because often when you're meditating, you only half see Kilesa. Sometimes you achieve some peace, which is what you're aiming for. Well, the Kilesas go quiet, so you're not even seeing them at work when you're meditating. Then they'll come up in other situations when you're more off guard or your mindfulness is not so continuous. So the life of a samana, the monastic training, where we use all aspects of our daily routine, our daily life, to reflect back on the state of mind and observe whether kilesa is present or not and what it does to our mind. It's not just when we're sitting meditation, it might be when we're eating, when we're bathing, when we're walking around, when we're talking to other people and so on, doing chores. A lot of our practice is learning to bring up mindfulness and observe ourselves in all these different situations. The way of the world, and particularly a non-Buddhist culture, cultural conditioning is to see the way to end suffering is just to find different kinds of pleasure through earning money and having the power and the freedom to do things with money, through seeking distraction, different kinds of pleasurable experiences, and often without much wisdom to it. So often people get caught into seeking pleasure, seeking a way out of their discontent and suffering in very unwise ways which don't bring them what they want, bring them more suffering, often in immoral ways or unskillful ways that cause pain and suffering to themselves, to others. So we're looking at that habit we've already possibly inherited through our upbringing, the influence of our peers, our family, our culture around us. <clears throat> Often don't have a clear understanding of suffering and where it comes from and what to do about it. We're having to work with that ourselves. But now we have the opportunity to use the wisdom and the training that the Buddha himself gave us from an enlightened mind. So it's our very good fortune to be able to practice even though it seems sometimes like the practice brings up suffering. It's not that the practice does that, it just exposes what's there. It exposes the kilesas which are the cause of suffering. 
So sometimes it's painful when chilesas are exposed. Sometimes we have, in the course of practice, we have anger arise, greed arise, fear, anxiety arise. So we have to keep developing skillful attitudes, how we deal with our own experiences day by day. Not just to shy or run away from kilesa, but to look and learn. Obviously in the beginning we do need to restrain our kilesas so they don't cause us too much trouble, or the trouble for others around us. So part of the Vinaya is to develop harmony and supportive conditions for each individual to practice. So we help each other out looking after the monastery, we share the requisites, we do things at certain times, we eat together and so on. This is just to help with basic harmony and basic peace, provide a peaceful environment in the monastery. And then we have to look more deeply as we're following the basic routine, the practices of the monastery, and look more deeply at our own states of mind that arise and develop skill for attitudes, develop some skillful action, how to deal with suffering that arises. So we need basic restraint. You know, we're willing to restrain our more extreme emotions of greed, anger, lust, fear, so they don't spill out into our external behavior, damage our relations with other people. Then we need some skillful means on the inside, internally. And this is where we rely more on developing mindful awareness and then understanding skillful attitudes to deal with our own personal suffering, personal issues that come up day to day. Sometimes when we come to the Buddhist teachings from a more intellectual background, we've read books and done some retreats, heard teachings, and often it's, we've studied from the very basic right up to the very top. We like to read about Nibbana, read about the Vipassana Yanas, <coughs> read about the Jhanas, even though we haven't experienced these things yet. Often we unwittingly let our kilesas take over even the Dhamma, the good Dhamma that we've read, heard. You know, uh, kilesas are very tricky and manipulative. So there was somebody here yesterday, they have a problem with their husband, the wife had a husband who's cheating on her. But they're both Buddhists and the husband's very smart and says, oh, in the end everything is just empty of self. We practice to experience emptiness, so whatever I do doesn't matter. And there's no self here. It's empty. So he's going around having an affair with another lady, causing misery to his wife and kids. Sometimes it's like that. We use the Dhamma with defilement. 
We can say, it doesn't matter what I do because it's all empty, there's no right, there's no wrong, these are just concepts, superficial concepts. And on the highest level that's correct, but our mind is not yet on the highest level. And we have to have the wisdom of the earthworm, as Ajahn Chah says, we have to accept where we're, our starting point is in the practice. And we have to be able to call a kalesa a kalesa and see the damage that they do be honest about that and then start working with them just where we're at, whatever our particular issue is start working with it and addressing it skillfully to do that we also need a lot of metta goodwill to ourselves first you know, if you're going to be able to sit down observe your own mind day by day, in different situations. There has to be a good attitude, one of willing, being willing to accept whatever's there already. If you do have states of suffering, unhappiness, just accept them, but not try to compound them, but to develop goodwill and a sense of learning to see what you can do to untangle yourself from these conditions that you've built up you know, maybe over many years through our life. There has to be a basic goodwill towards oneself. Wishing oneself well, wanting to learn, wanting to improve. And one has to maintain that so that one can start looking and learning from experience. That's part of the skillful attitudes that we talk about when we say developing skillful attitudes in daily life. The attitude of goodwill, which means a certain amount of acceptance, patience, willingness to be with things which are not always pleasant. You know, some mental states are not pleasant. Sometimes other people or situations are not pleasant. But with goodwill, we are willing to be patient with those unpleasant things so that we can learn, go beyond them. So we need goodwill, we need restraint, and then we need to keep bringing up mindfulness and wisdom, reflecting back on our experience. These are sort of the basic skillful attitudes we're learning. You know, we're learning to think before we do things. And why am I doing this? Is this coming from Kilesa or is this a wise, good thing to do? We're learning to think before we do, before we speak. The way of the world, often we just do things following others. We just think things following others, say things following others. You know, when we're kids, if you think back to when you're a teenager at school, you know, a lot of our views and opinions are formed just by what other people say. Oh, that sounds good. Or we want to connect and be accepted by our peer group. So we just pick up a lot of views and beliefs based on that, just wanting to be close to other people, be accepted in a group and so on, without really investigating very closely whether it's coming from wisdom or not. But now we have an opportunity to do that, really look at our own thoughts, views, opinions, ways of doing things, but with an attitude of goodwill and 
trying to develop an unbiased awareness, development the, the mindful awareness where we're not judging ourselves so much as just looking clearly and observing and seeing well what leads to what. If you keep holding on to negative thoughts, negative views, well it causes you suffering. Maybe leads you to do things that cause other people suffering as well. We're learning to see that, to be honest, so that we can change habits, change our conditioning. So if we develop some of these skillful attitudes through developing the sila, the precepts, goodwill, the ability to reflect on our behavior, our situation, what's going on. Then when we do come to do more formal meditation, sitting and walking, the groundwork is there. We've already been preparing a good foundation in peaceful states of mind. And this is the mind of a samana, one who is learning from experience, looking to see where the cause of suffering is and what needs to be done to abandon it. And we use the meditation techniques to really improve our continuity of mindfulness and learning to really give up to a meditation object. So really sticking with it, being patient enough, persistent enough to go through some of the different moods and reactions and feelings, sensations that we have. A lot of our practice is that, learning to sit, learning to walk, not just motivated by others, but motivated by our own understanding of how this can really help us as we improve our level of mindfulness. Because in the end we have to experience some of this stillness of mind in order to see deeper down to see where kilesas originate and to see them for what they are. As the Buddha said, when you practice developing meditation techniques, developing samadhi, it's like cleaning cloth. You're cleaning your piece of white cloth before you're going to dye it. If you've ever dyed white cloth, if you you know that process. If you haven't cleaned it properly first, then you'll get all kinds of stains. The dye won't stick evenly to the cloth. This is the practice, the development of samadhi, quietness, stillness of mind, based on a foundation of sila, purified by sila. Then you have a real chance to see any blemish that the kilesas bring up. You see it, just like specks of dirt on clean cloth. They become very obvious very quickly, very easy to identify a kilesa if you've got more stillness and more mindfulness. If you keep doing that regularly, even if your mind isn't always peaceful, but you keep returning to the practice of one-pointing the mind through the day, through time, then little by little, then the kalesas start to become more exposed. But we also have to use the 
backdrop of uh, lifestyle to help this as well. So we have practices around eating and sleeping and drinking and talking and all these things to help us. So you, when you practice meditation, develop some quietness and then you go and eat a meal where you can see kilesa arising, how it arises around the sight of food, the smell, the anticipation. And this is why we have one main meal a day eating our bowl because it gives you a chance to really see kilesa at work. And the rational mind says, oh, when you eat food, yeah, we need to eat. This is just the desire, it's a natural human desire. True, but once your mind is more peaceful with the quietness of some meditative samadhi, then maybe you notice, well, there's a lot of kilesa in there as well. It's not just feelings of hunger in your stomach, different sensations promoting the desire to eat. There's all kinds of mental proliferation as well. Attachments to certain kinds of food, certain tastes, what suits us, what doesn't, different views on food, you know, what's the right balanced diet and so on. It's endless chelases come into the process of just eating. Once you're practicing mindfulness, then you start to appreciate you know, the value of this if, of this lifestyle for helping you to really see where desire and attachment comes and how it affects you. Things like food, sleep, sitting cross-legged for long periods, these expose all kinds of kilesas, your preferences, your reactions to things you start to look and learn. And obviously the aim is to develop the clarity so you can separate out your experience. Yeah. Body, feelings, mind, mind objects, satipatthana, right mindfulness. See the impermanence of desire. And when you know it as impermanent, then it's not so infatuating. It doesn't grab the mind so much, doesn't become attachment so easily if you can see the impermanence of desire. Sometimes you see it in the way you, know, you meditate, maybe meditate in the morning, you become very still, quiet, peaceful, forget all your kalesas. Then you go and face the meal and you realize, oh, kalesas are all coming back up again, but at least you see them. You see how they emerge when the conditions are right, desires, attachments will come up. But now you're seeing that process of the kilesa arising because you've done your meditation previously. Arising from a previously quiet, peaceful, happy state of mind, now they all come up. How can you maintain some clarity amongst those de desires? Well, keep watching them, they arise, they pass away. They're impermanent. They stir the mind, they blemish the mind, they confuse the mind, stir the mind up. Their attachments, ultimately, they're not self. We use the training to help expose Kilesa, and then we also use it to help see the 
cessation of kilesa. So maybe you know there's more food, especially when you get a large crowd at holiday times. You get much more food on offer than you can eat. What do you do? You have to decide. I'll just eat the right amount for my stomach, my needs. And then there'll be a lot of very nice, attractive food you might just let go of. Can't eat it. No need to take it. The desire might come up, maybe a longing, a clinging, a wanting in the mind, but you don't follow it. You just take the right amount and you watch the, the wanting, the clinging just gradually fade away again. It's just that much. It's just a desire that arises, passes away. You keep watching desire arise, pass away, where you get to know it better. And then it doesn't hook you every time. As Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like the bait on the hook. And the fish keeps getting caught because it wants the bait. Our mind keeps getting caught by desire as long as we don't reflect on it with mindfulness and wisdom. It just keeps affecting us over and over again. We get addicted to things. So much of the world of the unenlightened individual is, is about addictions to things. And addictions lead to all kinds of other things. Like if you're addicted to something, then it leads to fear, anxiety, that you won't get the thing you want. It's not right, it's not enough. Or when you get it, there's trying to hold on to it, rather the fear of losing it again, and so on. Endless discontent, suffering around the desires, the attachments we have, small and bigger. But our practice is exposing this. Some teachers say just you learn around mindfulness of eating and then contemplating the nature of food, how it comes from the elements, how it's unattractive, what we call ahare patigula sanya, contemplating the repulsiveness of food. So once you eat it, it goes into the body, becomes unpleasant. Just that one practice can bring you to enlightenment if you're truly mindful and investigate. Because food is obviously the, the one thing we need for life, other than breath. So the very desire for life is centered around food, but then also all the suffering of different kinds of attachment, views and opinions can all center around this one thing. Even if it's not your only meditation leading to abandoning kalesa, it can certainly give you insight that you can use in other aspects of your life, other aspects of dealing with kalesa. All the four requisites can do that, give us insight into attachment, attachment for comfort, colour, shape, size, smell, all the sense objects. On from that we can see our attachment to sexuality, sensuality, attachment to power, status, position, on and on it goes, but you reduce it all down to the four requisites, you can learn a lot. How human beings identify with all these superficial things that are constantly spun around by kilesa attachments.
So our lifestyle is like this. We're learning to, first of all, just calm down, restrain our actions, our speech, live in a more peaceful way as seminars, and then investigating truth, developing skillful attitudes, mindfulness, wisdom, peace of mind of samadhi, and then the peace of mind of wisdom. The ultimately true peace of mind is the wisdom that sees the cessation of desires and attachments, cessation of kilesa, cessation of suffering. To do that, you know, we have to have enough patience, enough goodwill, enough willingness to watch the process and allow things to arise, pass away, and then contemplate, mm, that's the end of that. It's nothing real in something that's impermanent. There's nothing really substantial there if something arises, passes away. So if you keep looking and learning from your experience, then every kilesa can become known as an impermanent state of mind. You just know it for what it is, and then it doesn't have any great attraction for the mind. Yeah, so they fade away all the quicker. Even if they keep arising, they don't last very long, because you know they're impermanent. And one monk compared the mind of an arahant like a very bright ball of fire, say like the brightness of um in Thailand they used to have these uh, storm lanterns with a very powerful gas flame and you get a very bright light and they'd use for lighting halls and places in the old days when there was no electricity. And of course being the tropics in the night time you'd always get insects attracted to the light and they'd always fly in. There's not a lot you could do. You try to protect it with a screen, but every insect that flies to the light, it just flies in and it hits the flame and it just dies. No insect is big enough or powerful enough to survive the flame because it's such a powerful hot flame. They all just drop to the ground. He said the mind of an arahant is a bit like that. The mindfulness, the sila, the purity of sila, the mindfulness, the wisdom is so well practiced, well developed, well cultivated. It's like this bright light. And whatever kilesa comes in, whatever bug flies in, just drops. It can't sustain itself in there. The brightness of the mind just burns up the kilesa, seeing them as an icha dukkha anatta, not self. So the mind just doesn't attach, doesn't give in to kalesa. The kalesas of the world are still there all around. Obviously everyone else in the world still has kalesas, but the arahant doesn't give in to the kalesa because they know it's cause of suffering. So all the different mental states rooted in greed, anger, delusion, they just arise and drop. They can't affect the mind. The purity of the mind is sustained all the time. So even if we haven't achieved that, we can at least see the process of developing the kind of qualities, attitudes which will help to recognize kalesa and then deal with them well. So 
So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.